welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. All right, good morning. Good to see you here this morning. Be able to um, be together to worship the Lord. Uh, just wanted to uh, say it's good to have um, Charles and Josie back where they had. I saw them come in. Oh, there they are, <laughs> back there. Uh, Josie wanted us to uh, be sure and thank uh, the church for your prayers and especially for the the, the Matthews family and. Um, and for their their sorrow and the loss there with her, uh, and so um, we appreciate that. And it's really good to uh, good to see them, especially being gone for so long. So that's good. Open your Bibles, as you see, we're in Genesis chapter 23. I'll be looking there this morning, and I want to begin with the question: How practical is your faith? How much, how much does your faith affect your daily living? Or we could say this way, how does the gospel affect your daily living? You know, years ago when I was, we were back in the States, uh, I'd sometimes hear this statement. It's really a, a criticism of higher theological training. And someone might say something like, um, He's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. <laughs> well, that should never be true of a believer. In fact, the more heavenly minded we become, the more earthly helpful we should be. The scripture is clear that the genuine faith is a practical faith. And that's the emphasis that we have in James chapter 2 from verse 14 where uh, there we're told that faith that does not produce works of righteousness is dead. It's not real faith. It's not genuine faith. And so he's, he's telling us that faith, biblical faith, is not just a theoretical kind of faith. It's it's more than just knowing and agreeing about uh, the facts of the gospel. Uh, the gospel, in reality, should inform every part and should impact every part of our lives. Uh, and, you know, we know that we don't always live according to the reality of the gospel. We we all fail, we all sin, we all come short of that. But it should be a pattern in our lives. It should be a growing pattern, a growing reality in our lives that we are practically living out the reality of the gospel. As we've been looking and working through this series in Genesis, we've seen over several weeks now this faith journey of Abraham and also of Sarah, and how that they have uh, had their ups and downs. We've seen spiritual failures, and also the spiritual victories or successes that they've had. 
And most importantly, we've seen that their faith has grown, and it's in this process of growth in trusting God. And in this uh, section, chapter 23, we're reminded that our faith is not only for the present realities that we face, but also for future uh, realities and that we might trust God and, uh, and obey Him in all of these, uh, both present and future. And so that's, the, that's my theme this morning as we look at this passage, is a practical faith, both in present realities that we face, but also for the future realities. Let's look in verse from verse 1, Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kirath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and wept for her. And Abraham rose up from before her, his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Well, in chapter 23, Abraham's present reality is the death of his wife, Sarah. It's estimated that they had been married for a hundred plus years. And uh, that's a long time, isn't it? To, to be um, together with someone day in, day out for all that time. And uh, through their ups and downs, through their troubles and trials, but they were able to share life together all that time. Uh, we were thinking last Sunday, if it would have been Sharon's parents' 68th wedding anniversary. Uh, they, they were together, and uh, Sharon and I have got a little ways to go to, to reach that. Uh, last uh, month was our 41st anniversary. Is there anybody in here that's been married 60 years? Maybe that long? 55? Not close. 50. Okay, we've got some that are reaching that. Yeah. Well, you can you can just you know begin to uh, to to realize and feel a little bit of what Abraham would have been experiencing after being being with uh, someone for all that time, being together, and then uh, losing them. Even even though she was 127 years, it still you know it, it would have been expected. Probably she could have had been sick for a while. We don't know that detail, but that's still a very hurtful, very sorrowful, uh, very uh, great loss that he would have experienced. So the Lord intended, um, as we think about being married for all that time, the Lord intended marriage to be a lifelong union between a, a man and a woman, whereby they can share life together. And they can encourage one another in serving the Lord and living for the Lord. And so we see this sorrow of Abraham is summed up in just the statement, Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. We don't know how long that 
time of mourning would have lasted. It could have lasted several days. Even We, we kind of miss it in this summary statement. And it's easy to just read past it and not really think about their, their circumstances. Um, sometimes you run across uh, someone who has gotten the idea that it's wrong for a believer to weep uh, or to show you know, this kind of sorrow as if it's some kind of weakness. But that's, that's not true. It's not a biblical idea. Sorrow and weeping are, are in reality very healthy emotional reactions, especially in the loss of a, of a loved one. The, the, the child of God will have sorrow and grief, but we know that our grief is not the same as those that are without Christ. Uh, there's a big difference because of Christ. Um, because of Him, we have this steadfast hope in the resurrection and eternal life with God and that is why Paul wrote that we grieve not as others who have no hope. And so for us as children of God, we have this, this confident assurance based upon the Word of God. And this, and this hope of the resurrection, this hope of eternal home with God, was, was also a, a, a great encouragement to Abraham, no doubt. It would have, it would have given him comfort in his time of sorrow. We see also in this passage, and in really the, uh, the bulk of the passage, we can, we can see Abraham uh, dealing with the present realities of death, death of his wife. But there's also future realities that we have to think about. And our faith can be very practical. It should be very practical when thinking about future realities. There's many things about the future that we don't know. Many things we can't plan out. Many things that we just can't see. And many times these future realities can cause us to fear and to worry and uh, just um, uh, be troubled and if you know the Lord doesn't return first, our bodies are going to get older and older, and eventually we're going to die. And this reality of death faces us all. It is an enemy. It's the great enemy that we have. It's part of God's judgment that uh, was passed on to us from Adam from, because of the sin in the garden. But for the believer, we don't have to fear death. Uh, it's because of Christ and His uh, death for us that uh, we can have confidence even in death. By His substitutionary death, He removed the sting of death. And even the grave does not have victory over us because of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that He rose from the dead, we shall also rise to be with Him. And so for the believer, eternal life with the Lord is a future reality. We, we have this confidence because of the promises of God. And so Abraham also had this 
confidence in the future. There's not only the, the future reality of a heavenly homeland, we see Abraham also having confidence in the, in, in the reality of a, of a home on earth. The promises that God had given him related to the possession of the land of Canaan. And as we see in this context, he's still a wanderer. He's a, he's a, he's a sojourner, a stranger in this land. But he still believes God's promise. Although it may not happen in his lifetime, he believes. And God's already told him uh, that it's going to be a, a long time. But he believes that, that it will be his offsprings, his children's and their children's future home. And we see on five different occasions that God had made this kind of promise to him over the years, over the period of 25 years that he had been in this land of wandering. Uh, like Genesis 17, verse 8 is one of those. He says, I will give you, says God speaking to him, I will give you to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God also told Abraham in chapter 15 that his offspring would be in captivity for 400 years. And then the Lord would bring them back. Now that, uh, that would be hard to hear, wouldn't it? <laughs> We've got, if you think about it. You know, you're, th you're th thinking about this promise of God. God said, you're going to inherit this land. But there's going to be 400 years that they're going to go into another land, into captivity. But then I'm going to bring them back. And although these promises from a human perspective may seem impossible, Abraham believed God. And when it came time to bury Sarah, he sought to buy land and to bury her in this land of the promise of God. We see also at the end of chapter 22, if you notice there, uh, from verse 20, there's a section there that interjects information about Abraham's family. It's, it's probably more suited to go with chapter 23. Uh, we see there that it tells us about Abraham's brother and his family, the sons that were born to him, back in the the homeland from where Abraham had come, back in the Mesopotamian area. And uh, no doubt, at, the, at Sarah's death, there would have been an expectation that Abraham would want to take her back to their homeland, back to the, the area where his family was from and her family was from. And, and so there would have been this as a, as a customary expectation, but, but Abraham had accepted this new land, the land of promise, the land of his wandering as his new home. It would be the home of his, of his future descendants as God had promised. And so when Abraham uh, buys land and, and buries Sarah there in that land, it's a, 
it's really a, a statement. It's a lasting testimony to the promise of God and to Abraham's faith that he believed God would do what he said that he would do. One, one author, uh, R.K. Hughes, in his commentary on Genesis says, Thus we see that the bones of the patriarchs, patriarchs shouted from the cave of Machpelah that God would give Israel the land, which then culminated through the lives of Joshua and David and David's son Solomon. Well, we see the rest of chapter 23 uh, here is about the Abraham's uh, negotiations and the purchase of this uh, cave for burial and the, and the land there that was uh, the field that was connected to this cave. And he's negotiating with uh, the Hittites and in particular uh, a man named Ephron who owned the cave that Abraham wanted to buy. And the, and the scripture says, And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Well, it, it may seem strange uh, to us that uh, God led Moses to write such, such you know, detail and, 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 and so much information about this purchase of land. I mean, there's 15 verses here. You've got two verses, about, two or three verses about uh, Sarah dying. And in reality, it becomes the main theme here that's recorded about related to her death is the purchase of this land. And so it may not seem that important to us, but it had real significance for Israel. When Moses is writing this record, the children of Israel have now been delivered out of the bondage in Egypt. 400 years they've been down there in Egypt in bondage and they've come into this Sinai Peninsula and you'll remember that they had to wander in this wilderness, this desert area for 40 years because of the, the, the people did not believe God to go in and, and take possession of the land. They were afraid and they didn't trust that God would... Uh, take care of them and so they're having to wander in the wilderness until that whole generation dies off and the new generation that uh, their children uh, are now being admonished to believe God and to go and take possession of the promised land the land that God had given and promised to Abraham and so this record of Abraham and the portion of land that he purchased in faith would serve to strengthen their faith. They, they, would, they would read about it and hear about it and remember the promise of God and it would encourage them and admonish them to also believe God for what God had said. As we look at the New Testament, the writer of the Hebrews, the, the letter of Hebrews, does the same thing for the church. He uses Abraham's faith and the, the faith of others that would come after him to admonish us 
Uh, we read in Hebrews 11 from verse 13, these all died, talking about the Abraham and his, and his descendants. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. In other words, they didn't receive the land yet. They were still pilgrims and, and uh, exiles there, strangers. He says, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I want you to notice there that their, their hope in this far-off reality of a future home in heaven, it also motivated them. They had this, this, this belief in, in the promise of God concerning an eternal home, but that hope also motivated them for the daily exercise of their faith, the living out of the present reality that they were in at the time, and also for the not-so-far-off future reality of inheriting the land of Canaan. And so we see Abraham here living in that reality, exercising his faith, and many times the very you know, mundane things of life, the day-to-day issues that come up, just like we do. The big events, the big exciting things that happen, and also the, the tragedies that happen. He's living out his faith based upon a trust in God, believing God, believing that God's in control, believing that God will fulfill what he has said that he will do. Well, from verse 5, we see these negotiations for a, a burial site. And in many ways, they're, they're kind of like the ceremonial formalities that heads of state might uh, have when they come together for some kind of talks. Maybe, maybe you know, presidents or uh, from different countries you know, come together and they have these, these kind of um, talks and they go through formalities, things that are customarily expected and that's kind of kind of like what abraham does here with these hittites they come before the people at the gate that's where you met and and you see them going through these formalities for uh the purchase of land uh, notice from verse five and so abraham is asked about uh this land this cave that he wants for a burial and the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb or hinder you from burying your dead. And Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar that he may give me the cave of Machpelah which he owns it is at the end of the field for the full price 
let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. I want you to notice there the language of giving for a price. <laughs> it's interesting. It is the language of their negotiation. And so when you see them talking about give me the land, what they really mean is I want to buy the land. <laughs> I want you to sell me the land. It's the way we would say it. We, we would approach someone and say, would you please sell me that property? And we wouldn't go to someone and say, I'd really like for you to give me that <laughs> property. So, so it's a way of negotiation. It's a way of, uh, of talking. There was no intentions on the part of the Hittites to give uh, the property. And Abraham had no intentions of them giving him property at no cost. It's just, it's just the language they're using. Uh, notice some from verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, all, uh, of all who were at the gate of the city. And so this purchase, you see, is like a public, it's a public purchase. It's, it's witnesses. They, uh, like we would, we would use a lawyer to, um, you know, in, in, you know, legal documents to make sure, you know, it's verified. Well, they have this public, kind of public, you know, in, at the gate, and everything is done among the, the leaders there, of the people, and so that verified the ownership uh, and the deal that was made and the price that was paid and all that. And so continuing there, it says, but if you will hear me, this is Ephron talking to Abraham, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my uh, dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Sorry, I, I, I jumped on the wrong line there. I was back in, in from verse 10. Uh, and Ephron is saying to Abraham, Know my Lord, hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave uh, that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. So, <clears throat> so what Ephron is doing here, he sees an opportunity, evidently, to get uh, a, a big price and for this cave. He also wants to sell the field. Abraham wasn't wanting to buy the field, but Ephron says, no, I'll, I'll give you the cave and the, <laughs> and the, and the field. <clears throat> and from, the, from what we read later, we see he, evidently his motivation is he sees an opportunity to really make a, make a, uh, a lot of money on this purchase. And that's where Abraham, you know, bows down and he, he, he speaks to Ephron. He says, I'll give the price of the field, accept it from me that I might bury my dead there. And Ephron answered, my Lord, listen to me, a, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between, uh, between you and me, bury your dead? Um, I, the first time I heard this kind of uh, bargaining or this kind of language of giving uh, for a gift uh, back is uh, when we first came to South Africa in Cape Town, uh, we were somewhere, you know how they have these roadside markets, you know, where you can stop and, and uh, 
and these guys from various places in, in southern Africa are, are there selling, you know, curios and things that's been made and and it's, it's mainly targeted, you know, to tourists to you know, go and buy things. And so Sharon and I were there and we were looking at stuff and and this one guy, she, she was looking at some jewel, little jewelry things that they had made and this guy says, here, I want you to have this. It's a gift. And then we said, no, no, you can't, you know, we don't want to take a gift, you know. It's, we, and then he just kept insisting, and then, and then he goes, now can you please give me something? <laughs> he's, in other words, he's given a gift, but he's expecting a gift back. So he's really not giving. He's, he's, he's bargaining and negotiating for, um, for something back. And that's what Ephron does here. He says, what is, what is 400 shekels between us? You know, here, I'll give you the land. Um, and so what he's doing is saying, I'll sell you the land for 400 shekels. But what is that? And from what I've read, this is estimated to be about 10 times the price of what uh, would have expected to pay from what some other, uh, you know, data that in negotiations that were made. So Ephron here, he's, he's given him a, a big price. Maybe in his mind, it was like the be beginning price of a negotiation. Uh, to bargain, you know, and, and, and bring the price down. So he starts out with this really big, big high price for the field in the cave. But Abraham's, he's not really interested in bargaining. And Abraham listens to Ephron, it says, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. And so then we had have there at the end a summary statement of what has happened here from verse 17. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, a field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of, of his city, after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the, and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. It, it's interesting that not only was Sarah buried here in this cave, uh, 38 years later, Isaac would follow in his father's pattern here and follow in his faith to bury Abraham there also. And then we see many years later that Jacob would bury his parents, Isaac and Rebekah there as well. And then also his wife, Leah. And then when they, remember, went down to Egypt, uh, Jacob tells his son Joseph to take him back there to Hebron so that he could be buried there also. And they had this, you know, week-long mourning. Then it's a great possession of the Egyptians and also the, the family went back to Hebron, went back to Israel, what would become Israel later, back to the land of Canaan to have the burial there. 
And then right at the end of, the, of Genesis in chapter 50, Joseph made his sons swear to him. In other words, he makes them commit to taking him back. And uh, this is, you remember his brothers, the, the ones who betrayed him. Uh, and he, he makes them commit in saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Well, 400 plus years later, uh, after they went into this captivity there and under, under the oppression of Egypt, when God delivered them, Moses commanded the people to take the mummified remains of Joseph with them out of Egypt. And, and they carried him around in the wilderness all those 40 years. And, and, Joseph, and uh, Joshua, you remember, would eventually lead them into the promised land so that he could be buried there uh, as he had commanded, and they did. But think about every time that they would break up camp, somebody was responsible for taking up the coffin of Joseph and carrying it around with them. Uh, and, and every time the children of Israel would see that, I mean, no doubt, you know, they would be aware of that. They would see this coffin being carried. It would be a, it would be a testimony to the promise of God and to the faith of Joseph, just like those others before him and Abraham of their faith, their belief in the promise of God. We are also admonished to follow the example of those who have exercised faith, who've gone before us to believe and to obey God, both for present realities and also for future realities. We are to believe God and trust Him in Philippians 3, from verse 17, we read, Brothers, join in imitating me. This is Paul writing. He says, Imitate me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have seen in us. For many of whom I have often told you and are now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, from, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things unto Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand Firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Well, that words adds admonition to those believers and it rings still through the Scriptures to us that we might stand firm in the Lord because of the promise of God. And whatever you're facing today or tomorrow or next week, or maybe it's down the road a ways, we can trust God for that. And just as we can trust Him for our eternal life with Him, for 
to be with Christ, to have the resurrection, we can trust him for that. We can also trust him for today. And so the Lord would admonish us through this account and, and the impact it would have upon the Israelites in their time of weakness, their time of doubting, their time of fear, as they thought about going and fighting against these giants in the land of Canaan, these people with armies and walled cities, God is saying to them, trust me, believe me, and we can do the same. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Father, for your word this morning. Thank you for the, the encouragement that we see in your faithfulness to do exactly what you've promised to do. And though many times we cannot see how and why you're doing what you're doing and things are happening, Lord, we thank you that we know that you're in control and know that you're working even in those things for our good and your glory. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.